19th, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we say hello to a new version of the Doctor, a new companion, and welcome back an old friend in Spearhead from Space. We'll be talking about the Doctor, the companions, and the villains, and give your thoughts and score to five for the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, I'm going to start off, as I always do, with a story recap. Episode 1. At a radar installation site, a technician notices something approaching Earth's atmosphere, and he alerts his supervisor. After increasing the magnification of the scanner, they see that it is a cluster of contacts that seem to be approaching in a uniform formation. They land in the woods outside Epping, and their arrival is noticed by a poacher, who goes to investigate the impact crater. The supervisor makes a call about the landing to Unit HQ. Elsewhere, the TARDIS lands and the Doctor, now taller after his recent transformation, staggers out of it and collapses onto the ground. At Unit HQ in London, Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart welcomes Dr Liz Shaw, who is not too happy after going through the extreme security measures upon arrival, and is even less happy after being taken away from her research project. The Brigadier tells her that he would like to recruit her due to her many doctorates, including her speciality in studying meteorites. Liz is sceptical of the offer, saying that she has no interest in joining the clandestine organisation, mistakenly believing that they are an espionage group. The Brigadier informs her as the unit's true purpose, and informs her about the landings in Epping. He tells her that they seem to have been guided to their landing zone through a funnel of superheated air to prevent their disintegration. He tells her that six months prior, a smaller group landed in the same area, and Liz says that that is a statistical impossibility. The Brigadier says that due to the increase in space exploration, Earth is becoming more known to the other worlds in the galaxy. He reveals to her the two invasions that happened in the recent years, but Liz thinks that he is playing a joke. She reconsiders her opinion when she notices how serious the Brigadier is, and he tells her that they were only able to overcome the invasions thanks to the assistance from the Doctor. Just then, the Brigadier receives a call from one of his officers, Captain Monroe, who informs him about the discovery of a police box in the woods and the unconscious man beside it, who has been taken to a nearby hospital. The Brigadier orders an armed guard to be placed on the box and no one is to go near it, nor is it to be reported to the police. The Brigadier then says he will make his way to the hospital and informs Monroe to keep searching for the meteorites. In the hospital, the doctor's alien biology, his blood type and the fact that he has two hearts, is causing uproar amongst the staff, who think the various departments are playing tricks on each other. One of the cleaning staff, whose name is Mullins, overhears an exchange between the two doctors and then goes to call a local newspaper about it, hoping to get some money for his story. Meanwhile, in the woods, the poacher uncovers one of the meteorites, which appears to be a pulsing sphere of hardened plastic. He puts it into one of his bags, and he suddenly hears the sound of approaching voices. He goes to investigate, and he sees a squad of unit soldiers searching for the meteorites. Back at the hospital, the Brigadier arrives with Liz, and they are accosted by several reporters looking for information about the alien that is in the hospital. The Brigadier denies any of this and says unit's presence in the area is part of a training exercise. He and Liz then make their way to the doctor's room, where they are told by his attending physician, Dr. Henderson, that he's been drifting in and out of consciousness. When Henderson mentions his unusual biology, the Brigadier enthusiastically makes his way to the bed, but is confused when the man he sees is not the one that he knew. The Doctor awakens and recognises the Brigadier, greeting him, but he is taken aback when the Brigadier says that they have never met before. The Doctor asks for a mirror to see how much he has changed, and after receiving one from Liz, bemoans that his new face does not suit him at all. However, after examining it a bit further, he seems happy with it, 
as well as his new salt and pepper coloured hair. He then promptly falls back asleep, but the brigadier demands he wake up again. He then orders Monroe to have the doctor transferred to London as soon as he can be moved. He then has Henderson take them out via the rear entrance in order to avoid the press. In the lobby, two of the reporters notice their departure and confers to what could be going on. They then try to use a phone kiosk, but find it occupied by another reporter, but none of them recognise him, despite the fact that he had been there since the beginning, observing the brigadier's arrival. They notice that he isn't using the phone, and the man rushes out of the hospital without saying a word. In the woods, the poacher bluffs his way past the unit guards stationed around the TARDIS and asks how much information about the meteorites would be worth. When one of the soldiers tries to press him further, he says he doesn't know anything about them and makes his way back to his hut. Back in the hospital, the doctor demands to know where his shoes are and Henderson gives them to him. The doctor snatches them away, leading Henderson to think that he might be suffering of brain damage and orders a scan for him. When he's back his turn, the doctor surreptitiously takes the TARDIS key out of it and puts it into his mouth. A pair of orderlies then enter the room and one of them attacks Henderson, knocking him to the ground. The pair then grab the doctor, with one of them placing tape over his mouth, and they put him in a wheelchair, taking him outside. They wheel him to an ambulance where the mysterious reporter is waiting for them, but the doctor takes control of the wheelchair and starts to furiously roll his way down to the entrance. The trio take off in pursuit in the ambulance, and Monroe, recently arrived after encountering the day's Henderson, orders his men to try and shoot the tyres. Monroe and his men follow on and they encounter the empty wheelchair near the entrance. The doctor approaches the TARDIS, but one of the guards, who is nervous from the sound of gunfire coming from the hospital, shoots him. Episode 2 Monroe arrives and orders his men to stop firing. He investigates the doctor and finds that the bullet only grazed his head and so has him brought back to the hospital. Once there, Henderson hooks him up to an EEG machine and informs the recently returned brigadier that he appears to be in some sort of self-induced coma. Before the brigadier leaves, he shows him the TARDIS key, which they had the prize from the doctor's hands. The brigadier and Monroe then go on a patrol of the grounds, and Monroe shows him the remnants of one of the meteorites that his men found. The brigadier notices that it seems to be made of some sort of plastic, and orders it to be brought to his car so he can take it back to the HQ. The brigadier then wonders why the doctor was nearly kidnapped, and Monroe shows him a picture that was taken of the mysterious man, and Monroe comments that there was something peculiar about the appearances of his complices. At a plastic doll factory, one of the head inventors, Ransom, arrives at the owner's office to air his grievances after being fired. As he enters, he does not notice the mysterious man following him. Ransom demands to know why he, along with other members of staff, were let go and why there is an increased security presence in the factory. The owner, Hibbert, distractedly tells him that there has been a new policy and advises him to stay away from his own workshop for his own safety. The confused Ransom again asks what's going on, but Hibbert suddenly becomes very monotone in his reply whilst clutching the back of his neck. Suddenly, the mysterious man enters, and Hibbert tells Ransom that their meeting is finished. Ransom attempts to sneak into his workshop, but notices the mysterious man observing him, and he instead leaves. The mysterious man then orders Hibbert to keep the factory running as normal, whilst he continues to search for the two missing spheres. He says that they will emit a strong pulse signal that they will make them easier to locate. As they are having this conversation, the poacher is examining the sphere, but quickly hides it from his approaching wife. He evades her questions and tells her to make dinner whilst he places the sphere in a large chest for safety. In the woods, a plastic mannequin seems to be tracking the pulse signal, but becomes disorientated when the sphere is placed in the chest. However, it picks up a new signal as a group of unit soldiers uncover another meteorite, and it begins to make its way towards them. It appears on the road just as the unit truck transporting the sphere is passing by. The driver swerves to avoid the mannequin and ends up crashing into a tree, dying as a result. 
The mannequin then leaves the area, taking the sphere with it. At the unit HQ, the Brigadier is in the temporary laboratory that has been set up for Liz so she can run some tests on the sphere remnants. Liz is still sceptical of the Brigadier's claims about a potential extraterrestrial threat, which annoys him to the point he calls her difficult. She retorts again with scepticism about his claims and his belief in the Doctor's ability to help them. The Brigadier then receives a call alerting him that Major General Scobie, the regular army liaison officer to unit, has arrived and he goes to meet him. He introduces Scobie to Liz, who takes this opportunity to poke fun at the Brigadier by informing Scobie about the TARDIS, which has just been delivered to the lab. Back at the hospital, the Doctor has awakened and attempts to sneak out of the hospital, but is forced into hiding in the Doctor's washroom when he hears voices approaching. He goes for a shower as Henderson and one of the hospital board members arrive in order to avoid recognition, and after they leave, the Doctor raids the washroom lockers for some clothes to wear, finally settling on a smoking jacket, a debonair frilled shirt, and an Inverness cape that was left behind by the board member. He then exits the hospital and uses the board member's vintage roadster to leave. His disappearance is soon reported to the Brigadier, who realises that the Doctor will most likely be coming for the TARDIS. He tries to open it with the key, but discovers that the key will not turn, leaving him slightly confused. The Doctor arrives at Unit HQ and demands to be taken to the Brigadier. He arrives at the lab, saying that he was able to find their location thanks to a TARDIS tracking device on his wrist. He thanks the Brigadier for looking after the TARDIS, showing his new personality to be that of a rather suave and sophisticated dandy. He informs the Brigadier that he has lost a fair portion of his memory and asks the Brigadier to trust him. He is then introduced to Liz, with both of them taking an immediate shine to each other as he is taken with her scientific acumen and she is impressed with his flippant handling of the Brigadier. He immediately becomes interested in the remnants of the sphere, saying that it was clearly a container for something. He offers to help in exchange for the key to the TARDIS and theorises that the other unaccounted for spheres have been collected and taken away by someone for an unknown purpose. Back at the factory, Ransom sneaks in over the wall to continue his earlier investigation. Inside, the recently arrived Scobie is being shown a plastic facsimile of himself and is asked to contribute further to improve the likeness. Ransom makes his way into his old workshop, which is filled with mannequins like the one from the woods, as well as a strange pulsating machine. He goes to check the machine, but turns around when he hears one of the mannequins approach him. Episode 3 Ransom flees from the room as the mannequin uses a gun embedded in its hand to shoot at him. The mannequin pursues him outside, but stops when it notices Hibbert leading Scobie and the mysterious man down one of the factory lanes. The man looks at it, and it retreats back inside, allowing Ransom to escape. Scobie bids farewell to Hibbert and the other man, who he addresses as Channing, and asks if he can see the finished facsimile before it is sent to Madame Tussaud's Waxwork Museum. After assuring him that he can, Channing takes Hibbert into the workshop and reveals Ransom's infiltration. Channing then says that he will send one of the mannequins, which he calls an Auton, to eliminate Ransom before he can reveal what he saw. At the poacher's home, the wife informs him about the accident and the death of the unit soldier. Meanwhile, Ransom has been discovered by a unit patrol in the area, but he is in a complete state of shock and they are unable to make sense of what he is saying. Monroe tells his men to prepare him for transport back to the HQ. Not that long after he is sent away, the poacher arrives and inquires about a potential reward for the information about the meteorite, but he inadvertently reveals that he knows more than he is letting on. Meanwhile, Channing says that the Auton has lost track of Ransom, but will remain in the countryside to kill him if he returns. He then says that they need to locate the last remaining sphere, which he says is the Swarm Leader. At the HQ, the Doctor and Liz have run out of tests to ascertain the makeup of the sphere fragment. 
The doctor says the equipment they have to have is not suitable for the task and says that he may have something in the TARDIS that can help. Liz laughs at his explanation of how the TARDIS works, but nevertheless agrees to help him get the key back from the Brigadier. The Brigadier is at that time in his office, questioning the recently arrived ransom about what he saw in the factory. Liz arrives and asks to speak to him, but he says that he doesn't have time to speak to her. She is annoyed at his dismissive attitude, but notices the TARDIS key on the table and takes it and leaves when he returns his attention back to Ransom. She brings it to the Doctor, who then enters the TARDIS moments before the Brigadier storms in. He chides Liz for being gullible, saying that they won't see him again, and his point is proved when the TARDIS dematerialization effect fills the air. However, the sound is more strained than usual and eventually comes to a stop. But the doors open and smoke pours out from inside as the Doctor sheepishly appears and admits that he tricked Liz so he could see if he could escape his enforced exile. He gives out about the sentence the Time Lords imposed upon him, but seeing the futility of his actions, he turns his attention back to helping Liz and the Brigadier, who brings them to see Ransom. Back at the porter's home, the wife's curiosity has gotten the better of her, and she investigates the trunk with the sphere in it. Upon opening the trunk, the auton that was pursuing Ransom picks up its signal and starts to make its way towards the house. Once there, it kills the poacher's dog and ransacks the house before knocking the wife unconscious when she attempts to defend herself with a shotgun. At the field outpost, the doctor and the others arrive, checking in while en route to the factory. Monroe tells them about the poacher's claims and the brigadier says that he will go collect the sphere and the doctor asks if he and Liz can go as well. The brigadier agrees but says for Ransom to stay behind. They arrive at the house and see the Auton opening the trunk. The Brigadier and Monroe shoot it, but their weapons have no effect. However, the Auton is recalled by Channing for fear that more troops might come. Channing tells Hibbert that it's too early to take on Unit, and instead says that they should eliminate Ransom when the Auton scanners pick him up again. The Auton cuts its way into the tent where Ransom is, and it uses its weapon to completely disintegrate him. Meanwhile, Liz says that they should send for an ambulance for the wife, and the Brigadier goes to call one, whilst the doctor examines the sphere. He says that they need to proceed cautiously, but suggests that they go to investigate the factory. They stop back at the field outpost and discover Ransom missing. Not realising his fate, the doctor says that he has most likely been taken to the factory, and so they make their way to it. Once there, Hibbert laughs at what Ransom told them, and says that he was most likely attempting to get revenge when his proposal for a new electronic doll was turned down. The trio then make their way to the HQ, and the Brigadier informs him that he spotted Channing observing them when they initially arrived at the factory. The Doctor then brings their attention to the sphere, which he has hooked up to a scanning device. From the readout from the machine, it appears that whatever is inside the sphere is intelligent, and the Doctor wonders if he'll be able to communicate with it. Suddenly, a message comes through from the Brigadier, informing him that Scobie is waiting to speak with him after he requested a phone call with the Major General. The Brigadier asks him about his experiences at the factory, and Scobie says that he will come to HQ straight away to give him whatever help he needs. He then hears a knock at the door, and he is horrified to see his facsimile standing outside when he answers it. The facsimile then advances on him. Episode 4 In the lab at Unit HQ, the Doctor states that the entity inside the sphere is a brain of some description that is part of a collective consciousness, and the signal it's emitting is a call to the other spheres. The Brigadier asks that since it has no physical form, what danger it poses, and the Doctor states that it can most likely construct some sort of shell for itself, with Liz suggesting the plastics factory is the perfect location for this. Just then a call comes true from the facsimile of Scobie, telling the Brigadier that the plastics factory is now off-limits to his investigation. The Brigadier tries to ask why, but the facsimile hangs up, and the Brigadier angrily states he will go over his head to get permission. 
He says that the reason he gave the order is most likely because he is flattered about the model that the factory made for him. This statement piques the doctor's interest, and he and Liz go to visit Madame Tussauds. Once there, they spot the facsimile in a tableau featuring other world leaders, celebrities, and media personalities. They ask the curator if Scobie is the final edition, but he tells them that more arrive every day. The doctor takes a closer look at the facsimile and notices that he is wearing a working wristwatch. He doesn't realise that this is the real Scobie, but he tells Liz that they need to contact the Brigadier as he finds the use of the wristwatch odd. When they call through, they are advised by Monroe that he is at the Home Secretary's office. They leave a message for him and the doctor says that they will hide inside the museum until closing time. At the factory, Hibbert is observing Channing as he works at a large incubation unit that is housing the collective essence of the life forms from the meteorites. Channing says that they still need the swarm leader from Unit HQ, but Hibbert says that it will most likely be under heavy guard. Channing tells him that they will use the SCOBY facsimile to gain access, but when Hibbert questions how effective it will be, he tells him that the facsimile are superior to the autons as they are capable of perfectly mimicking their originals as they retain their brain patterns and memories. He then tells Hibbert that the other facsimiles will be activated tonight. At the Unit HQ, Monroe tries to object to Scoby taking the sphere away with him and says that he needs to contact the Brigadier. However, the facsimile pulls rank and threatens Monroe with a charge of mutiny unless he obeys, which Monroe reluctantly does so. Back at the museum, the curator closes up for the night and once he is gone, the Doctor and Liz emerge from their hiding place to take a further look at the exhibits in the tableau. The Doctor eventually determines that all the exhibits by Scoby are actually plastic, before he can say anything further, Liz alerts him that someone is coming and they go into hiding. Channing and Hibbert enter, and Channing says that he can detect an alien presence nearby, but Hibbert says that there is no one there, bar them and the lifeless Scoby. Channing tells Hibbert to open the doors, and they watch as they, several of the facsimiles file out to take over the positions of their real-life counterparts. Channing follows on after them, but Hibbert stays behind and confronts the Doctor and Liz when they emerge from their hiding spot. The Doctor tries to help Hibbert break the mental conditioning that he is under, but before he can get through to him, Channing returns, but Hibbert doesn't give away the presence of the intruders, and he leaves them with Channing. The Doctor and Liz return to the unit HQ and inform the Brigadier about what they saw. They then go into the lab, where the Doctor starts working on a device with the assistance of a very tired Liz. Back at the factory, the SCOBY facsimile brings the swarm leader to Channing, and he adds it to the other essences in the incubation chamber. He then announces that the Autons will be activated at dawn. Several hours later, dozens of Autons break out of shop windows that they have been positioned in and proceed to wreak havoc throughout the entire country, killing hundreds of civilians, police officers and military personnel. The Brigadier reports this to the Doctor and Liz, as well as the fact that the Autons have targeted multiple military communications infrastructures, thereby preventing a coordinated counterattack from the army. The Doctor has finished working on his device, and he says that he needs to get the Ransom's workshop in the factory. The Brigadier advises that the only support they have on hand is the men in the HQ itself, and the Doctor says that they will have to be enough. In Ransom's workshop, Hibbert manages to break through the conditioning due to the Doctor's words ringing in his ears, and he starts to attack the incubation unit before he is confronted by Channing. Channing reveals that he is part of the invading alien race, which are called the Nestines, a parasitic colonising race that have now targeted Earth. Channing promises to spare him if he aids them, but Hibbert refuses and is killed by an Auton. Channing is then alerted to the arrival of the unit forces, but they are intercepted by the Scobie facsimile and a platoon of regular army soldiers. Before the two sides come to blows, the Doctor uses his machine on the facsimile, which reverts it back to its original plastic form. The real Scobie awakens back in Madame Tussauds, scaring several of the visitors. 
As the brigadier takes command of the soldiers and brings them up to speed, the doctor and Liz sneak off and make their way through the factory to try and reach the workshop. Outside, the autons are dispatched and a firefight ensues between them and the brigadier's troops. The doctor and Liz enter the workshop and confront Ransom, who tells them that no one can destroy the nestings and he activates a dial on the incubation chamber. The doctor tries to use his machine, but it malfunctions and he is attacked by several tentacles that emerge from the incubation chamber, which then begin to strangle him. Liz manages to fix the device and the doctor uses it on the incubation chamber, killing the essence inside it as well as deactivating all the autons and returning Channing to his original plastic form. Later at the unit lab, the brigadier asks the doctor to help him prepare for a potential second attack wave from the nestines. The doctor agrees but turns down the offer of a salary and instead requests the facility and equipment to repair the TARDIS and lab, the assistance of Liz, a fresh wardrobe and a similar card to the one he stole which he is told must go back to its rightful owner. The brigadier agrees to all this and then asks for the doctor's name for their paperwork. With a knowing smile, the doctor gives his name as John Smith. End of the story. Yay! Yay, it's the first one of a new era in the bag. Woohoo! Oh. I love when I was going with my description of the doctor's clothes. I said, like, oh, yeah, it's like a smoking jacket and a shirt and a cape. Neglected to say that he took pants. (laughs) (laughs) Or that apparently a paddy cap isn't interesting enough for him. No. Uh, No, not a paddy cap, but a... Is that like a fedora? Is that like the old-fashioned huge fedoras? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I tried to be as descriptive as possible because, like, you know, I was like, oh, well, like, you know, clearly, you know, the first doctor, you know, when he went to the second doctor, you know, more or less the same clothes, but the pants, which seemed to have regenerated as well. Yeah, I think, like, the second doctor's wore a more crumpled version of the first doctor's clothes. Pretty much. that That's what it was. Yeah. Uh, so you're going to describe his outfit in every story? This year, he, or, or in this story, he's wearing the green outfit. In yeah, this story, I'll, he's going for more of a blue. Like, are we including all of this in the episode as it goes out? We can do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, pretty, pretty much what it's going to be is it's going to be variations of the same outfit. It's like you know, like a Ken doll essentially. He'll he'll have a he'll have a maroon one. He'll have a no, he won't. He'll have a green one. He'll have a blue one. He'll have a rustic one. It's like a camper GI Joe. More so than a Ken doll, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, if, if you do that then for his clothes, you have to do it for Liz's hair. Actually, do, do, do what's uh, more uh, He's like a palette swap Mortal Kombat character. That's pretty much yeah. it. There's like five <laughs> or six of them, all the fucking looking the same. But yeah, but I, lo- I love Liz's hairstyles as they go on. They just become more and more... <sighs> less... 70s? Less, less, sci- less doctorish, more 70-ish. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Anyway, should we talk about some trivia in relation yeah, I, to I, this story? I, I think the trivia spot deserves uh, a going out after a nice summary, I think. <laughs> yes, that's very good. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, Spearhead from Space, Season 7, Story Number 1. Air date, the 3rd of January 1970 to the 24th of January 1970. The writer for the story is Robert Holmes. This is the third of 18 stories written by Bob. Hi, Bob. 
<laughs> we previously discussed his work in the Crotons and the Space Pirates. We'll have to see now how this measures up with the two, those two because yeah. we weren't exactly impressed with those no. two. Is he tree for tree, or is he bro- is he broken the combo? <laughs> the director of the story is Derek Martinus. This is the final of six stories directed by Derek. Apparently, he kind of wants to distance himself from the program, and this is actually his only Doctor Who story that doesn't have any episodes missing. Jesus, all his right. other ones do. Yeah, yeah, so his other ones were Galaxy Four. Mission to the Unknown, The Tenth Planet, Evil of the Daleks, and The Ice Warriors. Now, unlike uh, poor old Bob, that's a pretty strong resume. It was exactly Galaxy 4. Aspects of Galaxy 4 were good. Yeah. Aspects. Aspects but, yeah. but the rest of them, though, Mission to the Unknown, uh, Tenth Planet, Evil of the Daleks, Ice Warriors, all really, really good. Yeah. Um, possibly because he wanted to distance himself from the program. Nicholas Courtney said on the DVD that Derek was very distant and that he was not a director that Nick felt he could easily approach if you had any questions. I wonder if that was because he was sort of like at the end of his time and he was like, look, you know, fuck it, I don't want anything to do with it. Um, But we'll see. So we've kind of hinted at this up until now. Spearhead from Space, first Doctor Who serial to be produced in colour. Mm-hmm. Huzzah! We can actually see what they look like properly with like colors and shit. Um, it was also the final contribution of producer Derek Sherwin. He went off to work on another program, and actually, he left in the middle of production. Just you know, left in the middle of it. I think I've kind of gotten over my anger, my initial anger at Derek Sherwin. I'm still annoyed at him for his decision mm. to fucking nix the uh, third part of the Great Intelligence Trilogy, but yeah. um, he did produce some really good stuff. He did, yeah, in France. He did very good. So an interesting thing about this is, and you've been kind of hinting at this for a while, this episode has a more of a film feel to it. Mm. And one of the reasons for that is that it's shot entirely on film. So usually you would have video in the studio and film on location, and that was the way that it usually matched up. For this one, though, all of the BBC Studios cameramen went on strike between the time of location filming and when the first studio recording was meant to happen, you know, they wanted more money and they wanted to, you know, get paid for the work they were doing, as you do. So what Derek did was that he committed to using film for all of it because the film cameramen were part of a different union who weren't on strike. That's actually amazing. (laughs) So that's why even on the set pieces, which normally like, and this is something that we are going to see more that we get into color. It doesn't come up as often when we're looking at it in black and white. Mm-hmm. It becomes very obvious in color. The change in contrast between what's a set and what's a location mm. becomes very apparent as we go through. Oh, and in this story, it's consistent because it's all the same type of camera work. In that, in that way... Uh, it's not only the first colour story, it's also the first story to be shot entirely on film. And because it was shot entirely on film, it was also the first story to get a proper Blu-ray. So because it's shot on film, it, it allows it to scale up more naturally. So it got you know a HD version, it got the Blu-ray version, and it allows it to scale it up and down much more naturally. There's less rework involved. See, I was always curious about the way that they shot Spearhead because I was like, is it because this is your first one in colour you're trying to make it a, you know, like a big event? 
in the sense of like, oh, let's do it as if we could release it as a film by itself, you know? No, it's because the guys are on strike and... <laughs> and then scabs. <laughs> um, oh, God. Like, now I really want to watch the movie The Replacements. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. These, guys, these guys are the replacements. <laughs> oh, the dance scene in the jail. Best. Yeah. Anyway, back to this. Yeah. Uh, the waxworks that we see uh, in the story. Some of them were actually real and it was shot at Madame Tussauds. Mm-hmm. And apparently, um, Caroline John, who plays Liz, um, do you know she got like Liz was like kind of unnerved by the whole thing and whatever? That wasn't all acting. She found them really <laughs> creepy. <laughs> and I've never been to Madame Tussauds or anything like that, but yeah, I, I can understand. They look creepy as hell. They're like, I've been to Madame Tussauds now a couple of times, and the first, like, this was like, you know, when you, you know, you read the books of Game of Thrones. And you start watching mm-hmm. other people's reactions. So I wanted to take a picture of the Patrick Stewart one. Mm-hmm. And there was this one in front of us, like, taking a photo. I was like, Jesus Christ, would she ever come on to fuck? It took me about a minute to realize that this was a fucking waxwork of a photographer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, they're awfully still. So the next time I went there, I watched people fall for the same thing that I fucking fell for. <laughs> <laughs> so... Question for you, Paddy, and I yes. know you're looking at the trivia, so it's probably irrelevant, but for the sake of those listening. Mm-hmm. How is the doctor credited in the credits? So you have, you know, is he, John is he, Pertwee or Bill Hartnell as... Is he done as Doctor Who? So, in most of the stories up to now, it's been Doctor Who as in D-or, as of like a title... Yeah. In this story, it was changed over to Doctor, spelled D O C T O R. This would continue until the end of Tom Baker's era, at which point it became known as The Doctor. So, this is a thing, right? That I am going to put my hand up and go, oh, not that I was gatekeepy about it, but I get very weird about it when people say, oh, um, Christopher Eccleston was the best Doctor Who. It's like, his name is the Doctor. Hmm. The show is called Doctor Who. <laughs> what the hell are you on about? But no, in the credits for, you know, up until 1981, so for nearly 20 years, the character was actually credited as some variation of Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Thru Who. <laughs> and actually, speaking of Eccleston, mm-hmm. the first season of the revival has him down as doctor who it's only with tenants that they change it back to the doctor i never read the credits so i never noticed all that i'm the same and this kind of reminds me of the never mind the buzzcocks christmas special that david Tennant hosted mm. and had bernard cribbins and catherine tay and catherine tay was like you know until a week ago i didn't realize that you know i was like i always thought he was like a doctor called mr who <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize he was just called the doctor and you could see bernard cribbins like fucking face pamming oh that's such a good episode <laughs> Barman. <laughs> um, we have a number of firsts, as I've mentioned the story, first in colour, first completely shot on film, first with Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R, who in the credits. This is also the first time we establish that the Doctor has two hearts mm-hmm. and that his blood is very different from yeah. human blood. So we've kind of had hints in previous stories that the Doctor isn't human. 
and that he's different. But usually it's more just his brain. Um, but here we see that he has two hearts. Um, again, a small segue when you were saying two hearts. This was used in a show called Argumental, where like one guy was trying to say like that Doctor Who was terrible, and he's like, "You know, and the Doctor has two hearts beating in just one time <laughs> now and forever," which marks him out as a fan of Phil Collins. <laughs> I actually used to have a. I probably still have it linked somewhere. Um, there was a really good Beverly and Jonic music video done to that song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Completely random. So, we mentioned in some previous stories that most Doctor Who stories contain the word the. Mm-hmm. Or certainly start with the word the. Mm-hmm. So, this is the first story since Galaxy 4 not to feature the word the in the title at all. Yeah. It's Spearhead from Space. It's also the the first one not to start with the word the since Fury from the Deep. So I often refer to this as the Spearhead from Space. It's not. It's just Spearhead, spearhead from, space. from Space. Yeah. I think I fall for that same trap as well. Yeah, I think part of it as well because the books often do, like the Target novels do Doctor Who and the. Mm-hmm. And so my brain automatically does Doctor Who and the. So the bit where the doctor accidentally turned on the windscreen wipers when trying to start the car, that was just John being John. And actually, something I find incredibly funny about this, and I'll forget it later on. So I'm going to mention it now for a story that's not going to come for several seasons. Hmm. There's a bit where the doctor gets into the roadster and he accidentally drives it forwards. Yeah. And then, you know, reverses it out. John was big into his cars. Oh, he was a huge vehicle fiend. He was a massive autohead. When Elizabeth Sladen came to work with him on the Time Warrior, he asked her to, I don't know, was it pull up his car or back out his car? And she basically crashed his car because it went in the wrong... Oh. He wanted to put it forward and it went backwards or vice versa. Um, Liz wasn't the best driver ever. She hated to drive. Um, <laughs> but it just reminded me of that. I was like, oh, that's, that's cool. Um, Time Lords have tattoos? Yes, this is one of my favourite addition. No, this is one of my favourite things of real life being added into the lore of Doctor Who. Yeah, so there's a scene where the Doctor's in the shower to try and hide from the doctor who's taking care of him and the visiting doctor at the hospital. No, no, no bum shot, unfortunately. Poor no, it stops just just shy. Just, just shy. shy. Although, have we had a topless doctor before? We have not. Yeah. Now, there's a picture of Patrick Troughton on set from the two doctors where he's just wearing his suspenders and it's like, well, this is a party that's going to get started. <laughs> <laughs> so, the thing is that the reason why they had the shower scene in the first place is because the building they were using for the hospital shoot mm-hmm. had that really cool shower. And they mm-hmm. kind of got there and went, oh, we have to use that. Yeah, It wasn't in the script. It was they saw it and went, that's really cool. Let's use that. Which, you know, if I came across that shower, I would say that's all. So mm-hmm. the scene was altered, so it could happen while the doctor was in the shower. But that meant it also revealed John's tattoo from when he was a sailor. Mm-hmm. Now, apparently, the way the expanded universe has sort of hand-waved this away 
is that it was a mark of a criminal placed on his body as a sort of identifier. So if he came in contact with another Time Lord and happened to have his sleeves rolled up, that they would see the mark and know that he was a criminal of the Time Lords. I think it's a very interesting way to explain the fact that he had a tattoo. And as well, like I think, I think it's a cobra, and the yeah. angle that it's at is that it's, um, I think it's head going down, so like going down towards the wrist. Basically, it looks like a question mark, which again adds into the whole Doctor Who mm. question mark iconography stuff. I also yeah. love that scene because he wears a shower cap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, can you imagine John getting his hair wet? I mean, come on. Yeah. Slight change from the original script. Originally, he was meant to be kidnapped from his bed and taken to a storeroom for interrogation. And then he would escape through a window. I think the wheelchair escape is way funnier. It's way more keeping with John. And without it, we wouldn't have gotten that awesome Danger Mouse video. I was just like, I was watching this the other night. I was like, (laughs) Danger Mouse. I was like, I have to send on to find again. It's fucking brilliant. Yeah. and originally the Autons were defeated by a high frequency sound that Liz arranged to be transmitted through, like from Broadcasting House at the Doctor's request, rather than the sort of more handheld unit that they ended up using in the show. And one trivia piece I was waiting to see if you pointed out. Does that factory look familiar? Is that the same factory that they used for the invasion? Yes, it is. It's where Vaughn met his end. Yep. Uh, it's, it's hard to tell with colour, and also most of those factories look exactly the same. That, that factory is the original quarry. <laughs> <laughs> so, on to our cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, not going into too much detail about him, because we've talked about him before, but mm. the Brigadier is here. Nicholas Courtney, welcome back. George Hibbert is played by John Woodnut. This is the first of four Who appearances for John. We'll see him again in Frontier in Space, Terror of the Zygons, which I read it and then I watched the episode again and I was like, holy shit, it is him. Uh, and the Keeper of Traken. John's non-Who credits include Dragonheart A New Beginning, Jeeves and Muster, The Bill, Crown Court, The Boy from Space, The Tomorrow People, and he has an uncredited role in one of my favourite and one of the Julie Andrews films that I think is the least loved and should be loved more, which is Star. Fantastic film. Very long, but very good. As we say, it is very good. It is very good. It is here. John passed away in 2006. Channing is played by Hugh Burden. This is Hugh's only Doctor Who acting credit, which is weird because his face looks so familiar. I thought mm. for sure I had to have known him for more things, but I didn't. He was actually considered for the role of Edward Waterfield in Evil of the Daleks. Mm. I got this stuff. Can you imagine if that character played Edward Waterfield? You wouldn't trust him at all. No, Jesus like. way. No. <laughs> His non-who credits include The Way Ahead, The Brontes, Ghost Ship, The Adventures of Robin Hood, No Hiding Place, The Avengers, Ding, Zed Cars, Double Ding, and The Mind of J.G. Reader. Hugh passed away in 1985. That's a new one for us, I think. The mind of J.G. Ryder. Yeah, he played the lead role in that. Cool. Then we have the Doctor. New actor here. We've obviously been mentioning him all throughout the trivia section. We have John Pertwee. Now, John was born in 1917. He was an officer in the Royal Navy. And he worked in naval intelligence during the Second World War. 
He was actually a crew member on the HMS Hood, and he was actually transferred off the ship shortly before it sunk, when all but three men died. So, uh, fortuitous timing there for John. Mm. Um, he was enrolled in RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, but he was expelled for lack of seriousness. Which I think is brilliant. <laughs> there, before you go on, right? There's an amazing interview that John did with Terry Wogan. Uh, mm. It was like um, during the Rosal Gummich uh, time, and his his mimicry of certain people is amazing. It's, so good. It, it's hilarious, and he actually does go into the time like where he was like you know expel- He was kicked out of multiple schools and about how. Um, he was almost going to get kicked out of one school, but Noel Coward really like, appreciated his work, and it was. Uh, but like seriously, uh, Terry Wogan, John Pertwee interview uh, on YouTube, it's hilarious, absolutely hilarious. So before Doctor Who, John was probably best known for portraying CPO Pertwee in the popular radio series The Navy Lark. It's probably the thing that most people knew him from and knew his voice from. And with that series and with other work he'd done as well and like just based off of his own personality that we've hinted at there he was known as a more comedic actor which is a bit of a change compared to the seriousness that he'd go to with the doctor the doctor we'll get to later has some funny moments but it's much more of a serious character than he would have played previously yeah because he's also known for some of the early carry-on movies like where he played like these really bit parts and it was like it's so weird seeing him in that compared to like you know this very almost James Bond-esque character that we hmm. we get to meet. Uh, we mentioned it ages and ages ago when we talked about the Daleks Master Plan. We'll mention it again. John's first wife was Jean Marsh, who plays Sarah Kingdom. His second wife's name, I can't pronounce. I think it's Ingeborg. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I was going to put in my notes, I realized I couldn't pronounce it, and now I've just mentioned it, highlighting my own inability to pronounce words. Outside of Doctor Who, John was also in Jack and Nori, The Avengers, The House That Dripped Blood, The Goodies. You mentioned he was in a number of Carry On films. Um, two of his other like sort of high visibility stuff was Who Done It, mm-hmm. and then of course Russell Gummidge. Which, which was when you go back and you watch it, you're like going, Christ, how do we watch this as kids? It's terrifying. But. <laughs> Uh, I remember I would like get it for you for for like your birthday or Christmas or something. Yeah, you you, you got me like a couple of worlds of garbage DVDs and we watched one episode. We were like, Jesus, this. <laughs> Although I did have flashbacks to an episode where like Wurzel is torn apart by another scarecrow, and hmm. I was like, but like it's again when you realize that Wurzel Gummidge is the Doctor. What more can you say? <laughs> and the theme tune to Wurzel Gummidge is oh, the theme tune. The other one that he was in that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago was Super Ted, which I didn't know up until we started doing this podcast that he was in Super Ted. John passed away in 1996 at the age of 76. He had a heart attack while on holiday in America. Now, we just mentioned Wurzel, so something quite interesting. John was cremated and he had a Wurzel gummage model affixed to his coffin. <laughs> and that was following instructions in his will. Aww. Which is adorable. His son, Sean Pertwee, is mm. also, is a fantastic actor and he's the dead spit of his dad. So much so that fans have been like they've been really trying to get him to like play the third doctor, like in a like in a, an anniversary event. Mm. And he's he's very politely said that the doctor is his dad's legacy. 
yeah. and he doesn't want to do anything that would jeopardize his dad's legacy and which you know like i think it's a nice i think thought. i think it's fair enough like and like i've seen pictures of sean he does look a lot like his dad but he also i wouldn't say he's a hundred percent look like do you know well i've seen some uh, pictures where people have like your know, photoshopped like the a kind of like a wig very reminiscent mm. of uh, John's hair and like it's like there's a very good resemblance there mm. but um yeah no I just like every time I think of John Pertwee I just think of Sean Pertwee as well and like just again just fan- to a fantastic much like we discussed a couple of weeks ago uh Patrick's son uh yeah. David again fantastic father-son legacy there yeah and lastly we have our new companion Dr. Elizabeth Shaw mm-hmm. played by Caroline John Caroline was born in 1940 um, outside of who she's been in things like Love Actually, Silent Witness, The Bill, Wish Me Luck, The Hound of the Baskervilles TV miniseries, which also had Tom Baker in it, Zed Cars, The Doctors, and she has an uncredited part in another favourite movie of mine, which is Santa Claus the movie, the Dudley Moore one. Who is she in that? Do you know at the beginning when the guy who would be Santa Claus comes to visit the little kids and he gives like the little wood carvings. She's one yeah. of the, the elder women in there. Um, really? Yeah. Because I like obviously though I watched that Christmas and I like, did not fucking recognize her. I do recognize Daisy from Keeping Up Appearances in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... no, she's literally that first scene when they go to that first house and they're giving out the toys. Mm. She's one of the women who's like, oh, they love him or or something like that. Are you now looking that up? <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not. I'm actually... Just because when you were on about um, the age of the, the John when he played him, and I was like, going, mm. like, John was 50. Yeah. Like, he does not look 50. We've considered, like, how old is Barman now? I don't know. <laughs> Barman's like his late 40s, at least. Yeah. Joe? Um, no, he was, he was a very healthy man by all accords. Yeah, Jesus. Just to finish up on Caroline, Caroline did pass away in 2012, mm. uh, which is unfortunate. Now, after she left Doctor Who, I was going to double back around to myself here, um, Caroline did revive the role of Liz for the BBV Probe video series, which was actually has a number of Doctor Who actors in it, and also for the Big Finish Companion Chronicles line of audio stories. More recently, her daughter, Daisy Ashford, has taken up the mantle of portraying Liz for Big Finish. And I've listened to one of her stories. It is fantastic. She does a great Liz shot, which is the right bits of her mother coming mm. through. And we talk about, like, you know, Sean wanted to leave the Doctor to be his dad's legacy, which I fully understand. I, I do like the mother-daughter thing, though, because Elizabeth Sladen and her daughter have, have a similar thing with Sadie, so... And speaking of Elizabeth Sladen, did Caroline narrate her... Yeah, so... Yeah, we'll probably get this when we get to Elizabeth Sladen, but we'll say it now anyway. So, when Elizabeth Sladen wrote her autobiography, she sadly passed away um, before the book was finished. So, her husband, Brian Miller, and their daughter, Sadie, finished the book. And then for the audiobook, Caroline John recorded the main bulk with David Tennant doing the foreword that he himself had written, and with Sadie doing the outro that she had written with her dad. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have a funny feeling. I'm trying to remember back, but I'll be honest, it was very upsetting just to listen to it. Whatever. I think Caroline actually passed away before the audiobook came out. You got that audiobook 
I want to say just before Christmas of twenty mm. uh, eleven. Yeah. Oh, maybe maybe in that case, though, maybe she died yeah. uh, a couple of months afterwards. So she passed away in two thousand twelve. Apparently, like I think it was like June. Apparently, she actually passed away at the beginning of the month, but they didn't announce it till like around the twentieth or something, and it was from cancer. Um, but yeah, I I remember when that came out. Yeah, because it must have been that when it came out that Caroline had passed away. I hadn't listened to the audiobook yet. I had it, yeah. But it's a very emotional book to to yeah. to to go through around that time, and so I hadn't listened to it. And then I was kind of putting it off because I didn't want to hear Caroline's voice reading yeah. Liz's words, and, they, and I was like, I, oh. Because I think, if I'm not mistaken, Mary Tam, who plays Romana One, died mm. not that long either after or before Caroline. Yeah, there was a a very. It started with Nick. And it kind of ended, I think, with Caroline. There was a, a period there for about a year and a half. Yeah, a lot, and, a lot of the classic. Well, um, a lot of the classic um, people from, passed yeah. away, which was which was unfortunate. We've ended this on a downer. Yeah. I didn't um, want to end on a downer. Damn it. <laughs> um. Okay. Something. 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 Um. Something Warzel Gummit related, maybe to cheer up the mood. Um. No, actually, do you what? Fuck it. Everyone, just seriously watch John Pertwee in a wheelchair escaping to the team of Danger Mouse. Yeah, and Joe, I actually going to do, right? Just purely because we've mentioned it now. We mentioned it a story ages ago. Mm-hmm. We mentioned it again. When I do this episode on Twitter, yes. I'm going to have, usually I just do one post. I'm going to do yeah. a second related post with the video because it's fucking brilliant. <laughs> There we go. Back on the upside. Back on the upside. Danger Mouse. (laughs) (laughs) So shall we discuss Danger Mouse himself? Yeah, I think we should. I think we should discuss the dashing Danger Mouse. So, (laughs) uh, yeah. Like seriously, uh, was it David Jason? I mean, like, come on, <laughs> he was Del Boy, he was our <laughs> no. Uh, so as always uh, on Time Traveling Team, we have our companion discussion after we take a visit to the trivia spot. So we're starting off as always with the man himself, the Doctor. Uh, we have our companions of Liz and the Brigadier, which is a controversial statement to make, seeing as how the Brigadier isn't officially classified as a companion. I think. Uh, I, I think. Um... We'll get to it more this season. Obviously, I've, we've we've seen these these stories uh, several mm-hmm. times over the years. Yeah. I think definitely for this season, he, I, I, he no, definitely I, I, is I, like I, I classify him as one like you know, yeah, uh, justice for Brett. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have a prominent character in the person of Hibbert, the factory owner, and then we have our villains of Channing, and then the Auton slash Nestian consciousness as a whole. Mm-hmm. So, that doctor, number three. Yeah, before we get into Doc John himself, right? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be very uncomfortable walking around with your key in your shoe? Yes. I, I tr- <laughs> I, I've tried walking with a fucking two euro coin in my shoe because, you know, I didn't have any pockets. And, yeah, that was a fucking nightmare. So, a fucking key? <laughs> and if you imagine... He must have had that key in his shoe for all of the war games. Uh, not all of the war games. Well, actually, wait. no, because he pulled the war. He pulled the key out of his pocket in the war games when they got back to the Tardis. Okay, well, like I say, he had it in his shoe, 
from the minute they were captured by the Time Lords. Yeah. Was he afraid they'd look in his shoe to steal the diamonds from him? Maybe, maybe Time Lords have an aversion to feet. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> ah, fuck it, toes. <laughs> anyway, though, on to Doc John proper. Yeah. Um, and for anyone who's wondering, it's really with John Pertwee and then Tom Baker that me and Paddy got our Doc John, Doc Tom thing. Yeah. <laughs> that we've adopted for Doc Phil and Doc Pat. And, um, and, and then it's like... Um... I, I th- yeah, because it, it was always like, oh, Doc John and Doc Tom. And then it was numbers. Numbers. Yeah. <laughs> for everybody else. <laughs> uh, but like, oh, like, I think it was like, you know, we had, yeah, it was numbers for everyone else. And then it was like, you know, nine, ten. And it was like McGann or eight. And it was like nine, mm. ten. And it was like Smith. And it was Smith and Capaldi. Yeah. So like, they, they didn't get numbers. They got names without the Doc preface. So yeah. we're going to have to adjust that. Yeah. Um, so... We have Doc John, the action man. But yeah. more than that, he's funny. He's serious. He's mischievous. I love his little naughty schoolboy thing where he's just sitting on the stool after he realizes the TARDIS wouldn't take off. Yeah. And he sort of won't meet the Brigadier's eye. And he's kind of like, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Sorry. Uh, one thing I noticed is that, mm-hmm. and I'll discuss this more when we talk about the Brig, the Doctor has a very different relationship with the Brig in the story compared to what we've seen in the previous two. He really does. He really does. And I think that... Obviously because like we have no companion to help with the transition like we did with Ben yeah. and Polly, we need another character to help show the difference in personality. I think bringing mm. back the Brig was a masterstroke. Oh, yeah. Like, like, and it, it gives him, given the storyline of the previous season, which is he's now exiled to a specific time period that he's very familiar with, like, the best thing to do is bring back a mm. companion, like someone to help you, you know, get into the swing of things with the new Doctor. And I think bringing back the Brig in Eunice is a masterstroke. Oh, I think it's brilliant. The one thing I found, though, um, actually, and we'll get to this more when we discuss the Brig, the dynamic is a bit different. Mm-hmm. Um... But a lot of that seems to be driven by the Brig. The way the Brig responds to him as Doc John is very, very different to way to the way the Brig responded to Doc Pat. And I'll talk about that more when we talk about the Brig. There were certain bits that it was John being John, like the whole naughty schoolboy stealing the key and whatever. Mm-hmm. But a lot of their relationship, it's the Brig that seems to be different. Yeah, like there's like I think as the season's going to progress, that's mm. going to really fucking stand out. But I maybe it's just the circumstance. Mm. Maybe, like maybe it's the situation that maybe the brig thinks he can spin it to his advantage. Mm. I th- I'll discuss it more with the brig. I wonder if it was just me that picked up on it that a lot of the tension that we never got tension with the brig and. Doc Pat. There was no, no tension. There was this friendly camaraderie and you yeah. know, very happy to see you and all this great stuff. Whereas here there's a bit of tension and that tension seems to come from the brig more than it comes from the doctor. It's weird. It's like a mix of like it's like it's like you take the elements of the web of fear and the invasion in terms mm. of the brig's character progression, you just kind of mush them the two of them together. Yeah. What I do love about the Doctor, though, in terms of relationships, is his immediate connection with Liz. Yeah, that's great. Like, literally, like, first sentence, like, oh, pleasure to meet you, Miss Shaw. 
can I do I have to call you Miss Shawshank? No, you can call me Liz. It's like they have this immediate bond. And it's such a contrast when you compare it with Troughton and Zoe. Absolutely. And what may, what makes that thing even better is that the, the 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 scene is that the doctor is just looking his face again in the mirror and he's like flexing it. And like he does, like you know, like uh, very flexible, and like these, you know, the eye, you know, very good for the planet of Delphon Four, where like or five, where they communicate only using their eyebrows. And he does like a couple of eyebrow raises, and then this is introduced, and he does the eyebrow raises. Then he goes, "That's Delphon for how do you do?" <laughs> I I love I love that scene. I absolutely yeah. love it. Their camaraderie is great, and it's right from the off. And like again, I'm gonna go with the fact that like. They like getting a rise out of the break, so the two yeah. of them will team up. <laughs> oh, like it's, like it's, it's so good. Like even like the scene where like Liz is like you know like on her last legs because she's fucking mm. exhausted, and it's just the two of them. Like it's they're like two students that have been up all night, you know, doing grinds or something, or like just cramming yeah. for an exam. They're like I love their relationship straight from the start. Yeah, but one thing though is mm-hmm. he did it once in the story. He gets a pass unique situation don't use her don't lie to her to get her to do things for you oh yes the trying to sneak away yeah he gets a pass in this story's unique situation but i'm watching don't 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 do that again Mm. um how i would describe him is Mm. dapper dashing Mm. and daring and dangerous? To himself, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> um, but like, I, 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 like, his whole thing is like with the, with the brigadier. It's like, oh, brigadier, you always know, like, and he always calls him Leftbridge Stewart. Yeah. Like, like, it's like, he calls him the brigadier when he's like annoyed at him, but when he's like formal, it's always like, oh, Leftbridge Stewart. And like, it's, I'm trying to figure out the best way to describe him. He's very kind of like old fella. It's like you know, it's, yeah. like, it's always like, oh, bring it here, my dear fellow. It's good to see you, or like, or my dear chap, or like, he's mm. just like that sort of, like maybe George, like you know, Edwardian gentleman type thing. It kind he's of like, ties like, back he's, to he's the a, first Doctor in a way. Yeah, there's like that nice through line between them. Yeah, he, and there's actually like that was the one thing I was going to comment on. There's a nice true line between. Uh, again, we're seeing that separation of personality. but that core of the same person kind of shining mm. through, like the way that he. Almost like the second Doctor, like very you know bombastic and braggadocious, and and how he gets into Unit HQ without showing any identification papers <laughs> whatsoever, and then it's like the very soft and gentle touch he has with his companions, all that kind of stuff. And then obviously there's uh, John Pertwee's amazing comedic facials as he's getting strangled by the tentacles from the incubation <laughs> chamber. <laughs> I think it's got like I think a, a part of it is kind of like he's got a very his nose, right, is though it's not huge, it's not honk, it's not there, but it's one of those things. It's like if you press it down, the eyes bulge out. He's like a fucking weird teddy bear. <laughs> um, but I'm like, I haven't watched Spearhead now in a very long time, but the performance again just stands out true, and I'm very excited to start going on now with the third Doctor. Yeah, I think for a first outing, John like hit it out of the park in his yeah. performance and we're and thankfully now we're two for two in terms of uh, starting stories for doctors yeah 
um, because like, again, like it's always a sort of a thing. It's very difficult when you're starting a new doctor. It's going to go. Well, I don't like this guy. He's shit. You know, he can't compare it to the previous person. It's like, well, the story is fucking great. I do wonder, like for you and me, it's kind of a continuous thing. I know. I know. I think you took a few weeks off between uh, two and three just to yeah. give yourself a bit of a watching break, whatever. But I wonder what's like for people at the time. Do you know? That was like the end of a season, the start of a new season. It's mm. in color. The doctor's different. And it's like, I wonder what that must have been like. Because like, I, I knew John already. So it's like, yeah, you know, it's like welcoming back an old friend. Yeah, exactly. So I, I can imagine like, well, like, I suppose we had a small bit of experience with, with 10. Because for, I know for me, because like when I was in and I was sporadically watching the revival. Hmm. so like after like nine became ten i didn't really have an opportunity to watch the show on a regular basis hmm. so i didn't really kind of pay much attention to like oh who was the new guy you know but hmm. then when tenant left and smith like smith was announced i was like wait well, i've never heard of this guy who the, what's he going to be like I, I have nothing to gauge him on yeah so that is my experience that's the closest i would get to that experience for this mm. because then Peter Capaldi was hired and I was like I know I know Peter from other stuff so yeah. I, I, I have a feeling even I, Doctor Who <laughs> yeah like I know I kind of know what I'm going to be getting in for here at least in terms of performance mm. and then Jodie came on and I I had heard good things about her but I'd never seen her so like yeah it was going to be a long wait before I was like oh my god what's it going to be like what's the new person going to be like mm. but um no John did a fantastic job in this first story mm. so. How about we talk about the lovely Dr. Liz Shaw? I love Liz. I really do. So, now, yeah. We on. had a bit of a thing a while ago, right? Yeah. So while Paddy was doing his summary, I interrupted him. And I'll edit the interruption out. But I'll tell you now that I interrupted him. Because Paddy introduced her as Dr. Elizabeth Shaw. And I cannot recall... A st- she is Dr. Elizabeth Shaw. That is her character. And we know this because Patty and I have watched Liz before. But no one calls her Dr. Shaw. Now, I am going to confirm. Ever. I'm going to confirm this because when I do the the ramblings, hmm. as you know, the, the, ram, the ramblings are always a quote. Hmm. And I get that from a very good website, uh, uh, Chicotea.net, which is the transcripts for Dr. Who. So if I miss out on something like that one time, I thought the second doctor was in saying the word callous said a very naughty word. So I had to double check <laughs> what word he actually said. I just uh, walked with the subtitles on. Yeah. So I am going to find. Yes. Um... Show, show. Yeah, it's not looking good. It's looking like it's she's Miss been... Shaw all the way down. Miss Shaw the entire way down, despite the fact that she has multiple doctorates, uh, yeah. as we have been told. Yeah, so that is a that is a bone of contention. I do not like is that yeah. she is a do- she is a doctor. You address her until she says no. You can just call me Liz, or you know. Yeah, because even if like um, and I've seen people saying like, oh, but like they didn't actually say that she was a doctor. They said that like, oh, she had multiple degrees or whatever. I was like. Well, why else would the brig? You don't hire like the. Uh, you don't hire someone who just got their undergrad. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's also implied heavily. <laughs> Do you know? Um, I, I love her. Um, 
I the one thing I will say right is when we get to when Liz eventually leaves um we'll discuss like things that happen in probe and things that happen whatever and like what was the character's life at? like afterwards do you say probe I, or pros probe it's the thing that they did oh the, wait fair enough because yeah. i was like that's not the word cool <laughs> <laughs> it is the word fucker. Yeah. p-r-o-b-e yes um i will say one thing now right mm-hmm I love Ian and Barbara and I have an undying love for Ian and Barbara. Mm -hmm. Since Ian and Barbara, my first sort of hardcore ship in Doctor Who is actually the Brig and Liz. (laughs) Oh, there's like... I love their relationship so much. There's there's such a a Mulder and Scully thing of like, oh, just fucking get it over with already, you know? But I, she's so sassy with him. She's just humoring him and having fun with him. But he is, while I, I'm going to start a running tally of how many times, if ever, he calls her by her actual fucking title mm-hmm. and not just Miss Shaw, he is very respectful of her in that yeah. sense. And I, you know, I love that. But like, they're just so cute. They, they really are. And like, they, like the chemistry between Caroline and Nick. It's really, very, very it's really, really good, and like, but like Liz is just okay. Now this might just come down to kind of it's obviously coming down to personal preference, okay. Mm. But Liz is the first companion, female companion, that I think is very is like that whole typical something for the dads type thing because like she's mm. very Caroline is a very sultry. Oh, she Like whenever, like she kind of expresses her skepticism, it's like the eyes kind of like raise up. You know, it's like they kind of flash a small bit, and it's mm. just like there's something very sensuous about the way she moves. So it's like I think this might be like I think again, like um, Jacqueline Hill, you mm. know, is a, like is a is a beautiful woman. But I think this is the first time where it's like you know, kind of put at the collar a small bit. You know, when it, <laughs> when it comes to that aspect of Doctor Who, yeah. Um, yeah, I think we're going to see that more. Uh, her skirts get very short. Yes, and her boots get higher. <laughs> her boots get higher. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I love how, like, she's very kind of like, um, I made the analogy there a few moments ago, she is kind of like Scully, or Scully mm. is kind of like her in the sense of she is very science and fact-driven. Yeah. Yet, when she's presented with the actual existence of something that she had derided earlier on, it's like, okay, cool, how do we deal with this mm. how do we overcome it how, like when the doc when she, she's shown that it the um, the nesting inside the sphere mm. it's like there's no kind of ah you're fucking kidding me it's like no okay this is interesting let's hook up all these machines let's run all these tests and i like that about liz i really do yeah. i do too like things i love about liz right i love how the first thing we hear about liz is how intelligent she is yes the brigadier immediately gives us the rundown you're studying this, that, and the other thing. She's saying she's got experiments running down in Cambridge. Oh, you're a specialist in this, this, and a plethora of other things. Yeah. And we immediately get how intelligent she is. But what I love is, and th- I have to compare it with Zoe, right? Because Zoe's the companion that literally just fucking left, who yeah. was also incredibly intelligent. Mm-hmm. And people derided her intelligence. Yeah. It was a point of humor. The doctor didn't really respect it all the time. Jamie certainly didn't. Whereas here, the brigadier is headhunting her. He wants her for this job. He clearly respects her intelligence. The doctor immediately respects her intelligence. 
which I love. The one thing I don't like, though, is once the doctor comes into the unit side, she kind of gets put to the side a lot. She mm. pulls it out at the end, but like the one thing I found myself asking myself last night was, so Liz was doing all these experiments. What did she actually figure out on her own? That's see, that's the thing. She, what wh- you could make the counter argument. Well, she eliminated all these other possibilities, but that's not the same as discovering something. Yeah, uh, it's a reach, unfortunately. Yeah, and she didn't. They didn't get to that conclusion of it's nothing earthbound until the doctor was there with her. We see her doing all these experiments. I, I would have loved for her to say like. You know, even if she just said, like, even if she figured out that it was, like, hollow, do you know, yeah. <laughs> it was obviously yeah. hollow. What the hell? Um, you know, that was just, it's just a small niggling thing of, they put her intelligence front and center. I would have wanted to see her use it a bit more in yeah. a in a way that had a definitive outcome. And it's like, but she does have, like, I think... That just from this story alone, there's a mm. very kind of Holmes and Watson type relationship mm. between the two of them. And like there's stuff that Liz does. Like Liz is the one that suggests, oh, the, the plastics factory sounds like the ideal place mm. to make these sort of shells that if they're using stuff, you know. Also, she's the only one that seems to show any sort of concern for the injured woman at the farmhouse because she's the one yes. that says, let's get an ambulance. But again, I suppose that's her training kicking in or whatever. And as you said, like she's the one that fixes the machine. Yeah. Like the, do- like, the doctor was the one that kind of helped build this machine. And, like, and that's the impression that we're given. We're given that he's the one that helped, or he's the one that created the machine. She's mm. the one that fixes it and saves his life. Yeah. And this is something about Liz that I I almost want to start keeping track of, is when Liz sciences by herself, or yeah. when the doctor just says, here, Liz, you take care of this, yeah. or trusts her to do it herself. Because we don't, we've never really had that up to now. No. Do you know, we got bits of it with Zoe, but it was always this undercurrent of, oh, well, I have to be the more intelligent of the two. Do you know? I think we just with the comparison of Zoe there is that if you think about it, right, that yes, they're okay. They both have the trope of they're they're very, they're a very smart human mm. character, but they're very, they're vastly different in the sense of like it's almost like Zoe is bred for her purpose. Mm. In the sense of like you know, we, like you know, we we made things that she seems destined to become like this human computer on the ship. Yeah. Whereas Liz obviously is of a different time, mm. and therefore her desire to become like an expert in all these fields—that's her desire. That's her want to get all this type of stuff. Mm. So because that's her desire from an early age, she still holds on to her own little individuality and stuff. So that when she eventually does encounter the doctor. It's a complete variation to Zoe because she hasn't been kept in this system that's mm. sort of designed to like almost eradicate her humanity. Yeah, I think as well that probably another difference between Liz and Zoe is Liz is an adult. Yeah. And Zoe was a child. Yeah. So that's different. Did we come up with a science name for Doc John and Liz? Were they science sibs or did we assign science sibs to somebody else? No, I think we were saving science sibs for these two. Okay. Science sibs. Science hey. sibs. <laughs> science sibs. Oh. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I miss science. Because, like, there was, so, like, a, 
the second Doctor and Zoe, it never, to, to, to me anyway, it never felt like an equal partnership. No. And, like, but we, they, there are incredibly tender moments, there were incredibly tender moments between the two of them. Mm. But it just never seemed to sort of, like, have that same level, you know? The closest now, we got to science sibs with the second Doctor was actually the second Doctor and Anne Travers. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That was almost like a proto-Third Doctor-Liz relationship between the two of them. Um, so let's just also we're going to start the scorecard now companions save one doctor saves zero <laughs> <laughs> um, well also like I love the way that uh, just speaking of the doctor like I love the way that he tests his machine by going to ch- by Scobie just staring <laughs> it was General Scobie can you please speak into this and he just turns <laughs> and all of a sudden fucking just plastic facsimile just falls That's so good. That's um, so now I suppose we go to the third part of this trifecta of 70s awesomeness yeah the brigadier the man the myth the legend with a proper mustache this time (laughs) first thing about this brig right it's not the first thing but it's it's the first thing i wrote down is he he clearly loves his job Hmm. and he loves messing with the press because they're like what are you doing or whatever and he's just like hmm Training exercises, as if to go sit and swivel, motherfuckers. That's all you're getting out of me. And you're like, you love that you get to wheel out that excuse, don't you? Nick Courtney is fantastic at playing. Like, it's it's the the perfect actor and character combination. Hmm. Because the Briggs whole thing is that, like, Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart is clearly from, I would say, like upper society yeah I, I wouldn't say like that he's I, I wouldn't consider him to be middle class I would say maybe upper middle class or whatever mm. but he's someone that I think turns up his like he, he kind of snubs his nose at like all the rigidity of that particular class but at the same time carries some of the trademarks to it to come like to come across as the way he does like that kind of the way that his men respect him or he's very kind of an yeah. imperious figure and that kind of stuff but I think he hates like pop other people using that same sort of pop and circumstance type of thing. I think the difference with the brig is that he recognizes the need to be respectful, and he recognizes mm-hmm. the need for like a, a difference that we're definitely seeing here is he's not calling any of these people by their first names, which no. he did do in the there, invasion. There's, there's, there's no more Jimmy. There's no more whatever. Yeah, there's no more. There's no more yeah. that. Which I think it's him kind of going, he respects the mantle that he has been given. He respects yeah. the position that he is in. And he recognizes that, you know, he can't be seen as being the buffoon. Yeah. He can't be seen as not taking it seriously. But when he has those moments, such as with a press corps, who are like, oh, blah, blah, he could have a little bit of fun. Just a smidge. I think it's a case of, like, since the invasion... Hmm. Like he's probably come to realize that there's a lot of the there is a lot of shit out there. So yeah. he, I think he's more experienced in the role. Like, oh, and obviously mm. there's a good bit of good period of time since the events, although mm. who knows how much time. Um, but like, I think yeah, it's like who like what happened to Jimmy? What happened to Jimmy die? And that's why he's so standoffish with everyone else. <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. Jimmy. <laughs> uh, um, but like 
he still has that like as much as he's changed in that regard he still has the mm. same lead from the front I'm not taking anyone's shit especially yeah. like you know like you know like when he like dealing with Scooby he's like oh, he's like not the only reason he gave up bloody orders because they made a waxwork of him <laughs> um, the one thing I find though is like he's much more confident here mm-hmm, do you definitely. know at times, though, and this is this is me going back to his slightly different relationship with the Doctor. A bit overconfident and cocky. So, I'm going to pre- uh, preface that with a comment that I had, uh, one of my last comments. Is mm. that I loved his genuine enthusiasm at the idea that the Doctor was here. Oh yeah! Oh no, that's fantastic. Yeah, but I think there are moments in the story where he's a bit overly confident, or he has too much confidence in himself. Like, and that leads to his relationship with the Doctor being different. He's essentially holding the man hostage. And that—that's what it is. Is that like when he realized that the Doctor isn't the Doctor that he knew, and by the Doctor's own admission that, like, you know, I've lost a fair chunk of my memory. I'm kind of stranded here. I'm obviously not uh, in the same position I was when we last met, at which point maybe the, the brig is kind of going, well, I have a problem, and you are a solution. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I, think I think there's a little bit of overconfidence in the role coming out there. There is. Which is why I think a lot of the difference in their relationship, it comes from the brig. Because the doctor was like, that's for sure, it's, you know, delightful to see you, whatever. Yeah. And you can see that the doctor kind of wanted to continue that sort of playful banter relationship with him. Yeah. And the brigadier is kind of like, well, here's the key to your ship. I have a problem. The key is now mine. And even when the ship doesn't work, the brigadier asks for the key for the key back. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, ignore the fact that that's his home, fucker. <laughs> like, he lives in it. <laughs> I think unlike a lot of the other doctors that the brigadier is going to have a relationship with. Mm. The third Doctor Brigadier relationship, I think, is the most interesting. I think I think it's mm. the best variation of that relationship. Because I it, haven't watched most of that relationship in order, so it's going to be yeah. interesting for me to see it. Like actually, I, 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 think, I think Nick and John brought the best out of each other's characters when they were working together. Mm. You know, there is also a large portion of the fan base who like you know, the Brig and Liz is like my thing. That's a yeah. non-canon but i love it a lot of people ship the brig and the third doctor it is <laughs> it's their jam it's, it's their thing one uh. thing i will say about the brig though is like i sort of commented and like i'll be honest in my notes i actually wrote down dr elizabeth shaw and i had the brig mm-hmm. and i had the doctor mm-hmm. and I had two little dots and i was ready to count the number of times he calls her by her fucking title and the answer was a big fat fucking zero. zero. <laughs> and the doctor got away with it because he was introduced to her as Miss Shaw mm-hmm. and she immediately gave him leave to call her Liz. Yeah. That's fine. Mm-hmm. The brigadier continues to call her Miss Shaw. I'm like, you want this woman to work for you. Call her by her fucking title. But the one thing, it, it, this is the weird thing about the brig because like, we saw him being kind of sexist in the invasion. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Alistair, are, are you are you a, are you a little sexist? Because I don't want you to be. Because I love you, but like you a little bit. What I will say though is I do love how he defends her to Scobie. Yeah. When Scobie's like, "Oh, you've got like pretty face around the office, or whatever," and he he immediately's like, "Well, she's not just a pretty face." And like, see, that's the thing is that like I 
I don't think it's a sort of a sort of like, well, I can say that, but you can't say that type of thing. Mm. It's. I think it's just know how to deal with her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't. I yeah, just like you know, <laughs> women, the eternal puzzle for <laughs> Nicholas Cor- or for Cor- uh, Leopard Stewart. What I will say though is like when he said like, oh, she's not just a pretty face. Mm-hmm. Like he said like she's not just a pretty face. And my mind yeah. went to he thinks she's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because she is. Oh, she is. Uh, <laughs> you said about the doctor. He's not even a pretty face. <laughs> uh, so I think like we're probably you know like we're just gushing now at this stage about the treatment because we like them so much. How about we, I know. How about we move on now to the next section, which is the prominent character. So that would be Hibbert. George Hibbert, you poor bastard. <laughs> That's actually the first point I have is poor bastard. <laughs> <sighs> like, you can see how hard he struggles with it. Hmm. And how much he wants to protect Ransom. And like, absolutely. And because like, he, like, he does that part so well. And it's like, what like I can't like that final scene where the doctor's words are ringing in his ears, mm. like he finally breaks that mental hold that Channing had on him. It's like I can only imagine the horror he must have felt when he broke the conditioning and he realized that he was partially responsible for Ransom's death. Yeah, because you sort of imagine like he sent Ransom the letter saying "Don't come back to the office." Or whatever he yeah. didn't have to do any of that. No, do you know? And it makes me wonder, like, how much of that was Channing saying, fire him? And how much it was Hibbert going, I can't have Ransom come back to this, they'll kill him. I I have a feeling that the letter was written entirely from Channing's point of view. Mm. Because it seems that the more, the more exposure that uh, Hibbert had, like, kind of, like, or more questioning, mm. like, or that, I think the more the control started to slip. Now the one thing about that is that it's never established as in like is it a mental thing or is it a sort of or is it some sort of device because he clutches his neck at various points in time. Yeah. So is that we like never a, see anything though, so I know. just went with it was a mental yeah, thing. I, that, that's that's why I wrote it as a mental thing as well. But it's like every time he's confronted with the suspicious nature of what's going on, the mm. mental hold starts to slip. Yeah. But the other thing as well is that like you know, he says to himself that when he's away from Channing, he can think for himself. Yeah. So that's what made me think, you know, was the letter maybe, you know, during a period where Channing wasn't there and Hibbert had enough, you know, wherewithal to kind of go, I can't have him come back to this. Mm, Possibly. Uh, We don't get enough information in it, but it's an interesting question to to ponder. The the only thing you can kind of factor into it is that, like, uh, Ransom's workshop is entirely taken over for the the incubation unit. Hmm. No, but I don't see Channing caring about that. I don't see Channing being like, oh, well, tell him never to come back. Channing won't give a shit. Yeah. We'll just kill him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, I I liked Hibbert. Um, In the sense of, like, as a portrayal of the character. Yeah. Yeah, he did did really well. And he's like, you know... Oh, you! If you help us, we'll make sure that we'll spare you, and like you know, we'll keep you, like almost like a pet. And he's like, "Spare me!" And then he just goes back to try to bash the machine, you know. Mm. And you know, like when he when he dies again by the auton, the and like the auton, as we discussed there, like it's there's 
because they're mannequins, mm. there's something very cold about the way that people die by their hands, as, mm. appo- as opposed to like, yeah, no, like, no, as, I say, like, as opposed to like, you know, the Cybermen or yeah. Daleks or whatever, there's something very different about when the Autons do it, I think. Mm. And like, this is a story, this is a story all about how. And, <laughs> You always make the point that you kind of like the human element in terms yeah. of, you know, villains. I always appreciate like good side characters, like very interesting side characters in the in the human component as well. Mm. And um, we like we've seen it in previous stories. We're going to see it in more. So I think mm. that's why I enjoy stuff like Hibbert. Uh, any other thoughts on the poor bastard? Nah, just poor bastard. <laughs> Uh, and all I have is the thing from The Simpsons. <laughs> I was like, I am smart, much smarter than you, Hibbert. <laughs> uh, so and now I have. I am so smart. Mm-hmm. I am so smart. S M R D. S M R D. Um. So we now have the villains. So we have Channing, who seems to be the spokesperson for the Nestine consciousness, and then we have the Autons themselves. So what? Where do you want to discuss them? Let's do Channing first. Okay. Because he's presented as his own being yeah. for a lot of the story. Dude is creepy as fuck. Creepy motherfucker. Like, particularly, right? <laughs> he's really creepy. And then it becomes actually hilariously funny. Mm-hmm. When the Brig and Liz and the Doctor go to meet with Hibbert. And they're standing in the hallway. <laughs> and the Brig turns around and, like, literally, like fucking right there it's just Channing just looking through the window at him it's like he can see you being a total creeper like subtle dude have you heard of the art of subtlety the man is amazing in a fucking um, staring contest yeah but he like he's just like that actor is so good at just like the standing still mm. the very other world like you know not quite there approach the stuff and then like that scene where the two reporters are like you know, are you using that kiosk and he just dashes out yeah every time he's on screen there's something settling unsettling about him yeah um and when you think about it like that Channing is essentially like he's a he's a facsimile as well hmm. but unlike unlike the scoby facsimile which looks like the guy is wearing a plastic mask that just looks like his own face and that mm. was that was the thing that that's how you were able to tell the two of them apart yeah it's it's like your man i don't know like fucking stuck his head into like a large thing of lemon jelly um it was an interesting way to do it though I oh think. no it, it was and actually um the two orderlies that mm. kidnapped the doctor the camera work is very good there because if you, when you go back and you watch it, you realize that, wait, they've actually kind of got the plasticky looking faces yeah. as well. But it's hid, like the camera work is uh, done so well that you will get fleeting glam- glimpses. And like when someone says, oh, there was something odd about their faces, they're like, actually, I think there was something odd about their faces. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, but when you, when you think about the fact that he's meant to be a facsimile, mm. like, the, the guy playing uh, Channing, his acting is even better than, you know, I, I, yeah. I, find, I find that. Uh, but yeah, Jesus Christ, creepy as fuck. The thing about him as well is that he comes across as very cool. So he's very yeah. cool, very calm. Hmm. But when something doesn't go his way, it becomes destroy, destroy, full yeah. destruction. It's very, 
Yeah. You ran to me a prick. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was like, oh, fuck you and your dog as well. <laughs> if I get the dog first. <laughs> like, oh, I've been so... doing this for six months. <laughs> Fucking let me. <laughs> There's just oh. one. I had some old fella hit it in a trunk, like for fuck's sake. <laughs> And then we have the autons and the nesting consciousness. Now, I yeah. will make a comment about the nesting consciousness. I don't know if you feel the same way on this. <clears throat> the design of the consciousness in it the It looks like a jellyfish's that... arsehole. <laughs> it, it reminded me of, do you know the film Evolution? Yep. Do you know the oh. end where they have to <laughs> <Yeah>. insert <laughs> the hose with the head and shoulders? Uh, yeah. I'm, it was I'm like sorry. that. This thing looks like a fucking pulsating sphincter. It, 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 it's just, <laughs> it's not good. It's really not. <laughs> and you can't not. It's not, it's not just like, it's just like mine and Paddy's brains work. There's literally no way to like not see it that way. Like, yeah. and you like, can't I, not see it. And it's like, actually, uh, because I know that the boys from Half Measures are going to be listening to this and they watch Rick and Morty, this thing looks like the, the horse machine that Morty fucks in, the, in one of the episodes. <laughs> yeah. it, it looks like a fucking just, it, it does look like a translucent jellyfish's arsehole. Um, no, that being said, the autons, yeah. the autons, the yeah. nesting consciousness, we don't actually get a whole lot of it, it's just a pulsating, pulsating butthole. But the autons and such, so you mentioned about that I prefer human villains, and, and generally speaking, that's true. The autons, though, are interesting because mannequins are creepy. Yeah, I was about to say, 70s mannequins can fuck right off, <laughs> like, yeah, they gave them eye holes. Without any eye eyes in them, they're just yeah. empty sockets. They yeah. Either have them faceless or have them with eyes. Yeah. This and the is... thing about like, you know, maybe it's because it's in color. You know, it's easy to disassociate yourself from things that are in black and white. Yeah. I can imagine if I'd watched this as a kid. This is fucking nightmare fuel. Oh, because like... you go into any shopping center, ever, and you see mannequins, and sometimes. They do look like they're following you, and you're like, okay, like they like in terms of the kids behind the sofa. Mm-hmm. I think this type of story more so than the Daleks and the Cybermen because the Daleks and Cybermen, you're never going to see in reality, unless you go to like the Doctor Who at the proms or something, and they walk into the theater. Oddly enough, do you know what kind of really, uh, what really set about my unnervingness around shop mannequins? Hmm. Terminator 2, in the scene where the T-1000 throws the, the, the Arnie Terminator out of the shop window, mm. and he turns his head and he looks at just like a silver mannequin. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that thing is going right. And like obviously now a lot of shop mannequins, they're, uh, they're, they're very featureless, especially mm. if you, know, you can see them in shops where like, in order to show off bright colors, the mannequins are black. Mm. And so they have no faces, and they're just the way their heads are tilting, I'm like... Why don't I keep my eye on you? Your fucking head's gonna turn after me. <laughs> um, but seventies mannequins are terrifying. Like they have like Abba, like they have Abba, Benny, and Bjorn wigs, and they have like as I said, just the, the lack of the eyes mm. is terrifying. And then like in the seat, the, the shootout or like the battle that they have with the unit, mm. like you just see their bodies getting torn apart by bullets, but they still keep going because they're just plastic molds. They're yeah. not going to stop until they're fully destroyed. Yeah, I I do love their sort of 
two shot zat hand. Yeah. Where the first shot will kill you. Yeah. And the second shot, it doesn't just disintegrate you, it removes you from existence. And I actually like And doesn't their... even leave any burn marks behind. No, it doesn't. And I actually like their the weapon design because the gun is actually hidden in their hand. So what happens is yeah. uh, if you imagine if you put a hold of your hand out straight, the f- half of the fingers falls down like a trap. And then yeah. the gun protrudes out of it. And then they're just walking around and they're shooting this kind of stuff. And the sequence where they actually go about just like randomly killing people, like they kill people at bus stops and they kill people. Yeah. Like they just break out of their shop windows. That was incredibly well done. Yeah, so it was very well done. I think it was a Derek's direction on this was fantastic. Mm. And yeah. like we talked about, you know, really good performances to end your tenure on. I think this was a very good story to finish his time with Doctor Who on. Oh yeah, I mean, like, if we go back to Derek's other ones, a lot of them, like we said, are missing, which is unfortunate. But like, Galaxy Four, I think was a bit more standard. Yeah, Mission to the Unknown was very good. Um, what we what we could gather from the initial setups of the pictures, Tenth Planet had some good moments. Evil the Dice had got some good moments, and Ice Wars. I think this one though, I think because it's Earth based, because yeah, you have some special effects, but you also just have guys in mannequin costumes. Yeah. Um, it really sort of flexed what the what the directors of Doctor Who can accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, I, I totally agree. For his final one, even if he was a bit standoffish, he wanted to distance himself from the show. It, you know, he didn't under deliver. Yeah. Do you know, no, it didn't affect his like his job, and it was like yeah. it was just a really really good performance with that. <laughs> And so we come to the overall section for the start of a new era. So, as we said at the top of the time, uh, I was going to say top of the hour, but we usually go over an hour. So oh, at, well over. Yeah, at, the, at the start of a podcast. Uh, don't put a time limit on us, people. We won't meet it. No. Uh, so at the start of the episode, we said that we were going to give the story, the story a score out of five. So, Trish, I'll hand it over to you. What are your thoughts on this story? So, new Doctor, new companion, new season, fantastic opener for all three. If you were someone who finds the black and white stuff unnerving, you can't adapt to it, all the missing stories, whatever, it's unfortunate because you'd be missing some great stuff like the first 16 we've said are fantastic, a lot of the Doctor... Zoe and Jamie ones are fantastic. Mm-hmm. I was saying Joey and Jamie, there's nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see you fall into my trap. <laughs> but if you decided, you know, I can't see the black and white, and the color was the first, like this was the first one you watched, was the first one in color, holy fuck, does it grab you and pull you in? And like, I've often seen some people like that when people say, oh, how do I get into classic who? You actually have a lot of people that say, in order to get used to the story structure, hmm. start off with maybe. John, because yeah. you have color and you also you have the color side of things and it's it's continuous, there's no missing episodes, and you mm-hmm. also get used to the story structure. Once yeah. you climb highs to that, then they say go back to one and two. Because yeah. some sometimes it is the story structure, like the, the multiple episodes per story that do kind of deter some people that are used to like the forty five minute mm. self contained things. But uh, no I go sorry, continue on your point there. Yeah, so it's a fantastic opening story. I, Even though they had to do it because of strikes or whatever, 
I love the use of film as a throughout because it's just this consistent look and feel and the difference between film and tape is it really obvious in black and white i can kind of tell when something was in the studio it's not as obvious i don't think i th- i think you can tell i think you can but you can but it's not it becomes very obvious in color yeah oh hugely obvious <laughs> so again if we're talking about a first introduction to have this sort of theatrical feel for this first story is fantastic John, Caroline and Nick together are just fantastic. I'm so looking forward to watching the three of these together and the stories that they're going to be telling together and like how they're going to pair off and team up in different stories and what have you. The only thing I didn't like is there was a couple of directing choices. Now, I agree. Derek did a fantastic job. There was one thing in particular. There's a couple of small things, but there's one thing in particular that just led me to be like what the hell do you mean which is they spend a lot of time showing you how plastic dolls are made <laughs> which is fine i think it's, it's a very good introduction sequence it works really really well it's kind of creepy would actually adds to the vibe mm-hmm. but then throughout it ransom keeps saying he's fired all the staff there's no one there i was like no we just had a big intro of there are people here they're working away making little plastic dolls the whole time. Although we, like, do, we do find out that some of them actually affect some of these as well. Well, that's just the the lady showing him around. Yeah, well, like, I kind of, you would assume by maybe association, but yeah. Yeah, but why would they have facsimiles making actual dolls? <laughs> I I don't know. Joe, you know, so like for me, it was a case of there was a few small things like that that you're kind of going okay or like the geography of like where are things in relation to each other like the wall that ransom climbs over to get into the um factory when he jumps off the wall he lands on the outskirts of the forest i'm like he was on a street how far did the fucker jump yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's a few things like that and like i feel bad for docking points for it but they like particularly the he's fired all the workers when we saw workers we saw that the thing was working at full capacity if it said he's hired he's fired half the workers even if they just said it that way it would have made sense but it seems like they wanted to do something interesting in the filming that wasn't backed up by the script i don't see a harm in docking points based off like some directional choices or something like that because yeah. if you go back to the crotons like yeah. the final was it two minutes of episode three are completely retconned yeah. in episode so like I was like no I took marks off for that because it just fucking kind of yeah. it kills the pacing of the story yeah. small bit. I'm not so, taking a lot off though because no. it is very small it's just it's making a filming decision that contradicts the script yeah no no so yeah. I gave it a 4.75 cool nice it is a very good story it is <laughs> um, so Based on kind of, again, what we said at the trivia spot, there's the Bob Holmes that we've been waiting for. Yes. Yeah, good man, Bob. Um, I agree. This is a fantastic first outing for the new Doctor. John has instant chemistry with everyone. Like he, he's just fantastic. He's just so affable, and he's like, it's the handshakes, the whole lot. Uh, the dynamic between him, Liz, and the Brig is great. You know, it's kind of it's like almost like a weird Harry Ron and Hermione type thing. <laughs> um, Liz is great. 
like I can't I can't wait to see her science sib some more with the doctor you know like I can't wait to see them do their thing uh having the break back as I said I'm a big fan of the break I'm a big fan of Nicholas Corky's characters and mm. having him back now as a as a permanent fixture at least you know for the foreseeable future I think that's going to be really good yeah because seeing seeing his ethos going up against the the doctor's own ideologies and morals and stuff that's always going to be a lot of fun yeah because even as far back as the first doctor we know his thoughts on organizations like unit mm. uh now that being said i do also have some deductions um now i've been trying to think about whether this is a fair deduction to make but i think the introduction of the autons is handled very wrong okay how so so we first get a view of an auton when it's just a random ass mannequin in the woods with no explanation mm. whatsoever and then you know it flashes back to um, Channing talking to Hibbert and saying like you know like oh the auton like you know it's like found the the sphere or whatever and then like you know there's the sequence where the unit uh, truck swerves off the road and the auton then claims the sphere and he walks off. No, the next time we see an auton is after Ransom sneaks into the workshop, and it, the auton comes to life behind him and starts to sneak up on him. I think that would have been the best time to show an Auton for the first time and then just have this mysterious first-person perspective of an unseen entity in the woods that causes the car to crash and all you see is a hand, a plastic hand or whatever, take away the sphere of the truck to help keep the suspense as to what is it. And then when you finally see the Auton come to life at the end of episode two, you are going, holy shit. Yeah, I can see that. I think for me, I sort of saw it as the suspense of shit is in a room full of them. Yeah. But you know, knowing what they can do, like th- there's two ways of looking at it. Like I looked at it from the shit is in a room full of them. What's going to happen? Whereas you were like, no, leave, the, hang on the reveal that little bit longer. And I can get that. And, and like, again, like it's like obviously the terror of going, oh fuck, he's after walking into a room with a whole lot of them. But I just think that as you kind of pointed out that this is like real kids behind the couch type scenario. Mm. I just think having that, that actual reveal at the end of episode two would have just made the art really fucking get you, you know? Mm. Um, so that, look, that's just personal preference and how like, you know, stuff like that gets revealed, you know? Mm. Uh, but one thing that I, I didn't like, and I did find it very disconcerting is the very weird instant translocation of character movements in the okay. sense of like, you know, oh, we better go to the the, um, the outpost. And then the very next sequence, they're just there. They don't arrive there. Or there's no pull-up sequence. They're just there in the tent talking, the kind of stuff. And a lot of that, ha- like, that happens throughout the four episodes a lot. So it's very kind of instantaneous. And you don't really get a chance to, you don't get a chance to come down from the previous scene. Because it does, it doesn't switch at a natural kind of a nice soft pace. It's just boom, 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 and you're constantly kind of going. You're almost kind of dizzy a small bit. But I found that that's what I was. So I took off marks for that because I, get, I took marks off it in previous stories, where mm. I think I did it in the Web Planet, where there's an awful lot of snap cuts back and forth that make it kind of hard to really center yourself mm. and prepare yourself for it. So my scoring is a four point five. Ooh, very good, very good. 
So not much in it between yours and mine. I think a lot of that's just down to personal preference. Yeah, I think um, it, it is. It is. Um, I mean, I think a lot. You know, my issue with you know, some of the direction and how that pertains to geography sort of tar- carries over a little bit to yours in terms of the, the jumping, or whatever. Um, for an opening story, though. Oh, this, very very good. Let's uh, see if we compare it to our previous season openers. So, season six opened with a two point five. Season four opened with a four for you, four point five for me. Season three opened with a four and a three point seven five. Season two opened with a two point five, or season three opened with two point five. Season one opened with a three. This is the, our strongest season opener to date. What? What did we open season five with? Season five with a four for you and a four point five for me. Yeah, that was two, wasn't it? Yeah. What's the season three opener? Oh, Galaxy. Season three opener was Galaxy Four. Yeah, and season four opener is The Smugglers. Yep. Yeah. So this is our strongest opener to date, and if we compare this with, um. It's not as quite as strong as power. You gave power a slightly higher score. I give power the same, actually, um, in terms of a first doctor outing. Um, you gave power slightly higher. Um, you gave it a four point seven five. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- I think was just, um, my deduction for power was basically the stakes as to what was mm. going on inside the colony. Um, whereas here it was just like I. I know, like, I don't want to, you know, it's one, I don't want those guys that are going, well, I think it would have been better if, you know, they did it this way or that way or whatever. But I just think for the suspense factor, what they were going for, mm. I think that reveal would have been, while the whole concept of, oh, shit, he's in a whole fucking room with them is good, I, mm. I just, for me, it just would have been that slight bit better, I think. Mm. Uh, but no, I think I, a very strong start, a very strong start for a new doctor. Uh, very strong start for a season, which is great. Um, and we'll see what that does to the average by the end of this season. Because I always find it, I always find it funny that you know when we we talk we talk with I would I'm going to say like a fair amount of passion about this show. Yeah. Yet the average our average for the first six seasons was like it's tr- just over three point five. It's three point six. <laughs> but. Um, Hey, That's... yeah, we said it. We said it at the end of uh, uh, War Games. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not a customer service company. Nope. And three is average. Anything over three is good. Mm-hmm. So three point six five, good. Yeah, Four point seven five, fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> five, I will love you forever. Yeah, I wonder. If, I want. Um... So it's just kind of weird to think that the first five that we gave uh, Hartnell was Edge. That's three stories in. Mm. Compared to Troughton, where he didn't get a five until uh, Enemy of the World. Mm. So I'm wondering where our first five for Mr. Pertwee is going to come. Hmm. I wonder indeed. I wonder indeed. So, um, with that, with that, guys, we've come to the end of a new beginning. So, join us next week. Next work. <laughs> join <laughs> us next week, where we will continue our adventure with the Doctor, Liz, and the Brig in Doctor Who and the Silurians. Bye.
Bye. Bye.